Ezekiel 37. We'll read the first 14 verses. I hope to preach on the first 10 verses. And uh, tonight, as we'll be walking through verse by verse in order, it'd be very important to keep your Bibles open so you follow the text um, word, phrase at a time. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. Again, he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. So, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking And the bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. Then said he unto me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So, I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people." And brought you up out of your graves, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live, and I shall place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, and performed it, saith the Lord. May the Lord bless the precious words of this vision to to all of our souls.
As you know, scientists have been trying for decades now to create life in a lab. And although some have succeeded in fabricating artificial bacteria, no scientist will ever produce the feeling, thinking, conscious life that we possess as human beings. Much less the life of the soul that God has implanted in us as his image bearers. There's something mysterious, beautiful, exalted about what life truly is. And we know that God is the differentiating factor between life and non-life. The life principle, the animating force and source of vitality and energy comes only, Psalm 104 tells us, verse 30, from the Holy Spirit, both physically and spiritually. So no scientist can ever create consciousness And no scientist can ever create the soul. But what is true for the physical life, in a sense, is equally true, even perhaps more true for spiritual life. Only the God who created everything out of nothing can give spiritual life to a human soul by recreating us into the image of Christ. And it pleases God to normally do this through powerful divine evangelism, through the means of human evangelists or evangelism, declaring, explaining the Word of God. And tonight, We want to consider that theme in the vision that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel, this powerful vision of dead bones coming alive in Ezekiel 37. So our theme tonight is powerful evangelism upon lifeless bones. And we'll look at three thoughts. First, the necessity of divine power, focusing on one and two. Second, the provision of divine power, focusing on verses 3 through 7a. Third, the effect of divine power, verse 7b through 10. And then fourth, the applications for evangelizing today. Well, Ezekiel ministered during the early part of the Babylonian captivity at least from 592 to 570 B.C. It was a dark time. Israel was carried away captive, 722. Judah, 586. The city and temple of Jerusalem were destroyed in the last wave of those three waves of 
exile. And it seemed hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. That Israel really had a future. That the chosen people would really come back to the land and have the salvation oracles that God had outlined by some of the prophets fulfilled among them. The new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and the valley of the vision of dry bones here in Ezekiel 37. These kinds of prophecies gave Israel glimmers of hope But it still seems so hopeless. Where is the God of Israel? Though he promises restoration to the land, it seems that nothing is happening. And maybe spiritually we feel the same thing sometimes about our own soul or the souls of our loved ones. Or as we seek to evangelize people around us, Sometimes it seems so fruitless. You work hard in the Sunday school and you wonder, what are the fruits? You work hard in your own family with family worship and conversation and and you wonder, where are the fruits? You try to evangelize your neighbors, your peers, people at work, at school, and you see no difference. You even proclaim the gospel courageously, boldly, freely, somewhat expectantly, but maybe you're discouraged. And you say, it just seems like I'm speaking to spiritually dead bones. Whether it's my children, whether it's my parents, or whether it's people at work or at school. Well, I've got good news for you. God does come. God does come and fulfill His Word. And God has a great message to us tonight about His powerful evangelism through redeemed people like those of us who are truly saved gathered here tonight to encourage us to persevere in evangelizing. It's the valley of dry, very dry bones that become a mighty army under his power. So first of all, we see here the necessity of divine power. So having your Bibles open, let's look at verse by verse now. Lifeless bones. That's the message of verse 1 and 2a. It's a lifeless valley. The hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the Spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. Just bones. Elijah says he was in the Spirit here. It's actually the same terminology used of John when he had his vision in Revelation 4. And the hand of God, however, in the Spirit, was upon him. That means... The vision was a powerful one, particularly as mediated through the Holy Spirit. And so this, remember, is a vision. This is not a physical valley, but it's symbolic of a spiritual reality. And the Lord confirms that vision's symbolic significance in verse 11 
when he says that the Valley of Dry Bones represents the exiled nation of Israel, that were without hope, were scattered, and their city lay in ruins. But you see, God is promising specifically here to Israel to restore his covenant people to the promised land. And he did that by directing the heart of King Cyrus to issue an, issue an edict allowing the Jews to return to their land in 539 B.C. You can read about that in Second Chronicles 36. So this vision communicating the restoration of Israel at the same time by projection communicates vital truths about spiritual death and divine quickening that are instructive for us today as we labor in the doors of the gospel going open through evangelism. So, picture the scene with me. This is a vision, and God reveals to Ezekiel this this hideous sight of an open valley littered with millions of dry, sun-bleached skulls and bone fragments, all portions of victims of a massive slaughter many years before. In fact, if any Israelite were to touch one of those bones, Numbers 16, 19 tells us, they would be regarded as unclean. Now look at verse 2. God says, or Ezekiel says rather, that God caused me to pass by these dry bones round about. In the original Hebrew, it actually says around around. So he went around more than once. He, he passed by these bones maybe two, three, four times. And God is calling him to, to look at these bones. Look at these bones. That's not a pleasant sight. Death is never a pleasant sight. Decay is never a pleasant sight. Devastation of the sin around us is never a pleasant sight. But you see, the point is this. Before God uses us, those of us who are believers, before he uses us evangelistically in a mighty way, he often crushes our dependence on visible things, showing us that in and of ourselves, there is no hope for success in this endeavor apart from God and his grace and his power. So he wants Ezekiel to hone in on the fact that these bones are dead. Absolutely dead. Dead for a long time. So that Ezekiel would trust only in God's promises and God's atoning work and the saving ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's actually the beauty, the beauty of evangelistic work, that we don't find any strength in ourselves to command success because there is none in us. The situation in our side is is hopeless. We're weak. Our problem in evangelism today is not that we lack sufficient strength. 
but too often that we lack a sense of our own weakness over against the sufficiency of Christ and learn to rest in that sufficiency. As Paul says in Second Chronicles, Second Corinthians rather, chapter 12, 9 and 10. So that God makes our weakness, His strength perfected in our weakness. So we come into the evangelistic mindset in utter dependence on Christ's strength. Whether you go to your unregenerate child, whether you speak to unconverted children in a Sunday school setting, whether you try to evangelize someone in your workplace, you, you remember it's not in me, like, like Joseph said before King Pharaoh. It's not in me. God must use the message. My dependency is entirely upon Christ's strength. So apart from Christ, all evangelism is totally hopeless. And that is stressed, underscored, underlined two or three times in verse 2b. Look at 2b now. And behold, there were very many, that is, very many bones in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Think of that. There are very many bones, and they are very dry. Now, for those of you who like math, I think you can do the math this way. Very many plus very dry equals very hopeless, don't you think? There's so many bones. It would be impossible even to distinguish one set of bones from another. It's a tragic scene. There was once such potential here. Once these bones were alive. If these bones were all alive now, they could have destroyed the Babylonians perhaps. Could have rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. But now it's all very dry. The hope of resurrection is gone. They've been dead so long. If you look at resurrections in the Bible, say Elisha uh, resurrecting the Shunammite woman's child, you know, it's not years after the fact. It's very shortly after the person dies. But these bones are very dry. They're very many. And it's been very long. How depressing. And when you look around at the world today, even compared to 10, 20 years ago, I mean, just continuing in figurative language, doesn't it seem like the bones are drier than ever and, and, and there's so many? And if you look at mainstream entertainment in our society or the tragic fruit of the sexual revolution or the gay prides that permeate our cities every June or the pornographic epidemic or the fentanyl crisis or increasing disrespect for parents among younger generations... Or disregard for the Lord's day. Or the blasphemy of God's name as a natural fill word. Oh, the bones are so dry and so dead. Seems like unbelievers are hardened. How can they trust in Christ alone for salvation? How can my words have any impact on an unregenerate human heart bent on rebellion against God, seemingly destined for everlasting punishment? Now, 
we must take this entirely hopeless situation from our perspective, go round and round it, gaze upon it, be convinced of the hopelessness of us ever resurrecting, ever putting life on these dead, dry bones, and take our cries to the Almighty God who turned the Roman Empire upside down through the preaching of a dozen persecuted apostles and say, if God can use that motley group of 12 apostles to turn the world upside down, He can do it again today. He can take the valley of dry bones in our day. He can transform it into a living army. The hopeless valley of death lies before us. But stand still a moment in the vision of Ezekiel and see the salvation of the Lord. Yes, the necessity, the necessity of divine power is obvious. But so is the provision. And that's what verses 3 through 7 are all about. God steps in. God gives provision through the life-giving Spirit. And so when we look at verses 3 through 7, the provision of divine power, I want you to consider five, five thoughts. And they all begin with C, so you can remember them, boys and girls. Five C's. Number one, and this is a, a big word, the conundrum before the prophecy. The, the problem, the, the contrast. Notice in verse 3 how Ezekiel is addressed. It has a lot to say to us about evangelism. He said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O Lord God, thou knowest. Calls him son of man. I guess if you use colloquial terms today, you'd say, human. Human. Can these bones live? You're just a human. You're just a fallen Son of man. The Hebrew word here is Adam or Adam. It conveys the lowliness of mankind. Because first it comes from the Hebrew word for for dirt. Reminding us of our humble origins from the dust of the ground. And second it reminds us of our first Adam who rebelled against his gracious creator in paradise. As Hosea 6 verse 7 says. So through this title, Son of Man, God reminds Ezekiel of his mortal weakness or nothingness to perform this impossible task. But then notice Ezekiel's response. Oh, Lord God, thou knowest. What a great response that is. Oh, Lord, there's nothing in me. I'm Son of Man. I'm just human. I can't do it. But thou, art thou not the Lord God, the Adonai Jehovah or Adonai Yahweh in Hebrew? That personal name Jehovah or Yahweh means thou art the self-existing God, the God of covenant loyalty and love and faithfulness to thy people, the God who always fulfills thy covenant promises. And thou art Adonai, a Hebrew word that means sovereign and powerful and has dominion over the universe. Oh, what a comfort this is. 
Ezekiel, you're just the son of man. You're just hopeless. But these two names are brought together in one passage. The Lord God, the Adonai Yahweh, the Almighty, is going to use the Son of Man to fulfill His purposes. To bring the Death Valley into a living army. This is glorious. This is glorious. You see, if we desire God to work through our evangelistic efforts, we need to approach our efforts, yes, with a sense of our own nothingness and our own weakness as sons of Adam's, and lean upon the Lord God, the sovereign covenant-keeping God. And then notice that he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? See, that's, that's the rub. That's the conundrum. The Lord is essentially asking Ezekiel, do you think it's likely? Or do you think it's even possible for these bones to live? Can, can you effect such a change? Son of man. Son of man, do you believe that I can effect such a change. Do you believe that today? Pretend you're Ezekiel for a moment and you're living in the 21st century. You believe that God can send a great awakening greater than the original great awakening? You believe that God can turn this society around? Do you believe He can work revival? O oh Lord God, thou knowest. He defers the great work of redemption to the all-powerful, sovereign God. For He knows who He will save. He knows that God has the power to save. So He, he turns it back over to God. The conundrum is resolved when we turn it back into the hands of God. So that's the first C. The second C is the command to prophesy. Let's keep going now. Verse 4. Verse 4. Again he said unto me, Prophesy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now prophesying, boys and girls, you might think it means predicting the future. Sometimes the prophets predicted the future, but the word prophesying refers more to just proclaiming the Word of God, being a herald of the King, declaring exactly what the King wants us to say. That's what we call preaching. Ezekiel is preaching. He's, proclaim, he's to proclaim God's Word to dry bones, to herald what God is telling him to speak, and to trust that God will use this divine word that God deposits in Ezekiel to bring life out of death. It's such a beautiful thing. Because when that happens, you see, Ezekiel gets no credit. When it happens, when God uses you to evangelize someone and he comes to faith, you get no credit. And that's the way you want it. You want God to be glorified. The Holy Spirit, the agent of new creation always works through the written and spoken word of the Lord. Hear, verse 4 says, not the word of Ezekiel, 
No, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. The covenant name. The covenant keeping God. The faithful God. This is, this is Ezekiel's authority. He's bringing the word of the Lord. Consider then how foolish, how futile it would have appeared to, to be to see the prophet preaching to a, a mound of dead bones. And we today, when we see the world around us and its insane ideas and its bizarre ideas and its wickedness and its godlessness, and we even look at our own flesh and our own wickedness, we might cry out, foolish, it's foolish to preach. The gospel is foolishness. But you see, God uses the foolishness of the message preached because it pleases him to save sinners through it, 1 Corinthians 1.21. And so we press on. We press on with the command. You notice twice it says in this passage, so I prophesied as he commanded me. We do the word and the work of God. Which leads to the third C, the content of the prophecy. Look at now at verse 5 and 6a. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live. There's no maybes here. This is the authoritative word of the king. Thus saith the Lord God. Whenever you see that expression, boys and girls, thus saith the Lord God in a prophet, you know that what's coming is directly revealed to the prophet by the Lord. And again, the Lord refers to himself here as Adonai, the sovereign, almighty God, says unto you, you shall live. You shall live. And God declares that he will cause breath, breath to be put in you, he says. Now, breath is a, is a Hebrew word, ruah, ruah. You could spell it R-U-A-H. It's a very important word in the Bible. In the King James Version, it's translated one of three ways. Spirit, referring to Holy Spirit. Primarily, wind or your breath that you breathe out of your mouth. So, all three of these words have something in common, don't they? Ruah refers to the principle of life, of activity. Sometimes to life through your breath. Sometimes to life through the activity of the wind blowing. Sometimes to human spirits, or more commonly, to the Holy Spirit of God. So what connects all three of these concepts is that breath is evidence that the life principle is present. We do not live because we breathe. We breathe because we live. The wind is powerful and effective, even when we can't see it, Jesus said. And so spiritual things are invisible, but we know that they exist through their effects. Through their effects. 
We cannot see the invisible God because he's a spiritual being. But we see his effects on our visible world. In fact, we could go stronger and say the visible world only makes sense because of the invisible world. So these three concepts, spirit, wind, and breath, share the idea of movement, activity, life. And that's the beautiful thing. When the Holy Spirit moves upon someone, they're made a a new creation. They're made different. They're changed from within by an almighty power. We're down in Texas two weeks ago, as you know, and a mother walked up with a 16-year-old son. And she uh, was telling me about the fact that he wanted to buy one of my fattest books a Puritan theology. When he was 15, his mother said, well, it's too big of a book for you. And No, he said, I want, I want that book. I want to read that book. So she bought it for him. And, and then he looks at me and kind of shyly says to me, this book changed my whole life. <laughs> changed your whole life? Really? And I could just see in him, he was, he was a different, different person. And he, he just had a look about him that, I thought, I wonder. So I said to him, do you, think, do you think God might be working in you and calling you to the ministry? Oh, he hung his head. Oh, no. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know. It's way too high for me. Way too high for me. Which was exactly what I wanted to hear. <laughs> and so I, I reached on the table and I got in my book on Reformed preaching and I handed it to him. I said, if I gave you this book, would you, would you read it? Would you read the whole book? And he burst out into tears. He said, absolutely. Thank you so much. And his mother looked at him, and they just fell into each other's arms, and they started weeping. The wind was blowing right there. You see, God is a surprising God. When that boy was 14, two years before, he couldn't care less about reading anything religious. And now, you see, God is working. God has changed him. God can do great things through his word or through expositions about his word. The spirit is the animating agent, both in physical life, but also in spiritual, supernatural life. So, God does it. He raises people from the dead, spiritually. If you see a corpse, you know what I'm talking about. There's a haunting sense of lifelessness when you see a dead body. But the Holy Spirit, you see, makes the difference between a lump of flesh and bones and a living, breathing person who can say, my whole life is changed. It's the wind and the breath of God that changes human hearts. I will cause you. I will cause breath to enter into you. I will make it that you shall live. Now, here's the point. I want you to listen carefully to this part of the sermon. It's all God's work. But God uses human means to do His work. There's a beautiful parallelism here. There's a beautiful 
molding, melding together of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. It's true that the bones are dead. It's true that only the powerful work of God can raise the bones into a living army. But it's also true that Ezekiel must preach to the bones as though they could hear and respond. Knowing they can't. And by faith he must believe that they will hear and respond according to the will of God under the power of God who gave Ezekiel the command to prophesy. That is so beautiful. It's so typical of the way God works. Ezekiel had to command the bones to awake as though the bones could hear and the bones could obey. Just like Jesus said to the man with a withered arm. I mean, he can't stretch out his arm, can he? Stretch out thy arm. The power of Christ, he stretches it out. And he's healed. That's what happens spiritually, you see. The unregenerate, if you're not saved today, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. John 3, Ephesians 2, Titus 3, it's all over the Bible. Every man and woman, every teenager, every boy outside of Christ, every girl outside of Christ is like the valley of dry bones. And yet we must preach, we must talk to our children, we must preach from this pulpit, we must evangelize others knowing that the Holy Spirit alone can bless our efforts and that He usually does so through evangelizing efforts. From the pulpit, one-on-one in a restaurant, or in an airplane, or in in an office at work, or in the family home between father and mother and child, or child and parent. It's through the Word of God and the free offer of the gospel That God makes dead sinners alive. I'll never forget when I was a theological student. I studied under Reverend Westrade in St. Catharines, Ontario. And he was telling me that there was a man named Reverend L. Reichsen, a well-known minister in the NRC in the Netherlands, who was his theological teacher. And he said, he often said, he often said this, When you get on the pulpit, you must preach with such zeal and energy and power and conviction that it's as if you believe that you had the ability to save people, while at the very same time, you know that you can never save anyone. It's always a wonder of grace at the same time. That's right. You see... God doesn't call an unconverted person to go prophesy to the bones. God calls a, calls a man, he calls a man who's been changed from within. And that man has the passion and the zeal and the commitment and, and, and loves the spiritually dead. And so... We must call sinners, you don't have to be a preacher for this, every believer must call sinners around you to respond to the gospel by praying, as we heard this morning, by repenting from your sins, by trusting Christ alone for salvation, and urging people to lay hold of Him by faith 
And as we do so, it's like telling the withered man to stretch out his arm, isn't it? God can bless those means so that the dead bones come alive. Now, in other words, people, as the Synod of Dort says in the canons, people are not stocks and blocks. Even though the bones are dead, they're not stocks and blocks. In this sense, every human being that's alive has breath. They have thoughts. They have feelings. They have a a will. And though they're spiritually dead, and though we cannot make them spiritually alive, they do have a mind that is approachable with the gospel. And so we must urge every sinner to come to Christ, calling them to repent, even from their lack of repentance, telling them that if they will receive Christ alone for salvation, He is theirs, freely theirs forever. Whosoever will, let them take of the water of life freely. Christ offers Himself freely to sinners. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Oh, my dear unconverted friend, that's what He says to you tonight. Come and drink. Those dying from thirst must come to the thirst quencher. Isaiah 55, 1. Come unto me, ye that are thirsty, and drink. So, this is the point I want you to get. Whether you're working in a Sunday school program, whether you're working with your children at home, wherever you're evangelizing, we are called to expect God to work as we proclaim or as we share the gospel. Because he uses the gospel. He doesn't just elect people. But the very word election means that he also elects the means by which those people will be saved. And the means is the gospel. The means is preaching to dead bones. Matthew Poole observes on this text. He says... uh, God offers life to the wicked and cries out, Why will you die, O house of Israel? So this prophecy consists of God proclaiming promises about the bones to the bones. (laughs) About the bones to the bones. You see, I will cause breath to enter into you, you dry bones, and you shall live. Why will you die, O sinner? Just come to me. Cry out to me. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Charles Spurgeon put it so well. This is an amazing quote I'm going to read you. It's, it's about ten lines long, so bear with me. But it brings divine sovereignty and human responsibility together, um, noting the practical implications of this balance for evangelism so well. Here it is. How shall we then preach the gospel? Was Ezekiel to do what some of my hyper-Calvinist brethren say preachers ought to do? To warn the sinner, but then never to invite him? Was Ezekiel to go and talk to these bones, but never to say a word of them to them by way of command? Was he to explain the way of salvation, but never bid them walk in it? No, no. After he had declared covenant promises, he was then to say, Thus saith the Lord, ye dry bones live. And so the message of the gospel minister, when he has declared the purposes of divine grace, is to say to sinners, Thus saith the Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Trust Him, and you are saved. 
whoever you may be, Jew or Gentile, whether your speech be that of the land of Canaan or of a Gentile tongue, whether you spring of Shem, Ham, or Japheth, trust Christ. Trust Him then, ye dry bones, and live. Withered arm, be outstretched. Lame man, leap. Blind eyes, see. Ye dead, dry bones, live. The manner of our preaching is to be by way of command as well as by way of teaching. Repent and be converted. Every one of you, says Peter, lay hold on eternal life. That's the quote of Spurgeon. That's the content of the prophecy. I command you to bring this message to dry bones, Ezekiel, God says. And then a fourth C, very briefly now, the cause of the prophecy. The cause of the prophecy. Look at the end of verse 6. And ye shall know. See, when, when, when the dead bones live, ye shall know that I am the Lord, the Yahweh, the faithful covenant-keeping God. I'm the cause. I'm the total cause. I use means. I use you, Ezekiel. But it's my sovereign, gracious covenant work. And you see, that is what gives us the grace to persevere on this pulpit. What gives us the grace to persevere in the Sunday school, in the outreaches of this church, in our own homes. God will bring it to pass. That's our encouragement. So we persevere in evangelism for the sake of the one who created us, who redeemed us, who promises to shower bliss upon us for eternity. It's all His amazing sovereign grace. If He can save us, He can save anyone. And then the fifth C, the compliance to the prophecy. Verse 7a, So, I prophesied as I was commanded. So simple, so beautiful. Just obedience. We not only evangelize out of love and gratitude to our Savior when we're Christians, But we also do it because God has commanded it in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I hope to preach about that text as a follow-up sermon uh, some weeks down the road for you to show you that this command rests in the Great Commission. God has not only commanded the act of evangelism, He's commanded the content of our evangelism in the act of evangelism. As I was commanded, so I did. Ezekiel's not an innovator here. He's not a super prophet here. He's just doing as a herald for the king what the king commanded. That's what we're called to do when we evangelize those around us everywhere. We're just doing what the king commands. And if that's what we're doing, you see... Then when we get rejected or when people spurn our, spurn our conversation or our offer, it's not a personal rejection of you. They're rejecting the word of the king. You don't have to feel insulted. You don't have to feel like, oh, wow, I don't dare do this again. You don't have to be afraid. No, you're bringing the word of the king. And they're responsible for what they do with that word. Don't take it personally when they reject you. The hurt should be, They've rejected my king. They've rejected the one thing that can give them true joy and happiness in life. Well, go out and evangelize. 
command the dead bones with the word of God to live and see what God will do. The necessity of divine power, the provision of divine power, and now the effect of divine power. Look at 7b and 8. And as I prophesy, notice, as I prophesy, God's using the means, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and bones came together, bone to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above. But there was no breath in them. This is an interesting allusion to the creation of Adam. We read that God fills the body that he created with breath. There was no breath yet in them. God is reversing the decomposition process. And as in the physical creation, God alone can give breath in the spiritual recreation. So there's a sound. Actually, the Hebrew word is is the same word used for an earthquake. There's a shaking. There's an earthquake. There's a revolution. And God, the Spirit of God reassembles the bones into the bodies that were. And the breathless army, God breathes into it the breath of life. Verses 9 and 10. Say to the wind, thus saith the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived, and they stood up on their feet, an exceeding great army. Well, the Holy Spirit is that wind, you see, that blew upon them and brought their bodies back into the bones, made them new creations, and they breathed the breath of life into them, and they lived. They lived. God can do the miracle of the new birth. Through Ezekiel's faithful proclamation. Notice this. God transforms the very many and the very dry bones into a massive army. In the original Hebrew, it says a very, very great army. Very many and very dry bones becomes a very, very great army. It's the power, the Hebrew word indicates. The power of a military force. The power of a divine Yahweh. A divine Adonai that does the almighty work. And he is therefore the Lord of hosts. The Lord of a mighty army. The Lord of a mighty army. So this is what gives us all our success in evangelism. God breathing into dead bones as we prophesy, as we evangelize, as we pray. He is transforming a valley of dry bones into a powerful army. That's what he did in the 16th century Reformation. It was as if the Holy Spirit hovered over Europe and changed the whole continent. By his power. That's what he does in great revivals. That's what he did in the great awakening. But that's what he does with every single individual convert. And as converts, we are to go out now and we are to, we are to labor. We are to turn into evangelists in our own sphere. 
bearing fruit, God will decide whether it's 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. But there's massive potential in every believer who goes out and speaks about the Lord and about His gospel and about the wonders of grace and tells sinners, if He did it for me, He can do it for you as well. You know, you know I have the privilege of doing conferences in different countries, and one of the things that I get the most out of it, even though it can be taxing, and it's not always glamorous as you think or might think, it can be very taxing, but there's a joy in it because no matter where you are, be it in places as far-flung as Korea or Brazil or New Zealand or Colombia, you get to see firsthand this mighty living army coming together, recreated. You get to see and feel the powerful, energetic indwelling of the Holy Spirit that produces new life and obedience. And it helps you to believe when you hear these people talk and how their lives are changed and how we've, we've heard thousands and thousands of wonderful conversion stories in our life of how the Spirit changed people, made them new creations. It makes you believe that God, God could take our wicked cities and turn them into an army of godly mothers and faithful fathers and holy children. Let us storm the mercy seat as we heard this morning with prayer and tears. Oh God, command thy blessing on thy commanded word. Raise up a mighty army of the dead dry bones. That's the way to pray. Now, to do that evangelism, of course, there's all kinds of ways. And I don't have time to go into all those tonight. I will in the future in a little mini-series here on evangelism. But think of it this way. Preaching itself is evangelism. Whether it's done from a pulpit in an organized church, whether it's done in the open air, whether it's done at a conference, it itself is evangelism. And we as preachers, we are actually modeling for you, maybe not in every sermon directly, but in every sermon to some degree, and in some sermons directly, we're modeling for you to give you ideas of how you take the word preached and you then go out and take thoughts and take ideas and take approaches and you evangelize other people that way. Secondly, you support evangelism through your gifts, don't you? Through, through missionary support, for example, and, and mission trips. A lot of you young people have taken mission trips to help support evangelism in different countries, especially Mexico. That's a wonderful way, you see, to practice evangelism. And many of you know that when you practice evangelism, when you engage in it, by the grace of God, one of the greatest recipients of it is you. Sometimes you get more out of it than the people you bring it to. Because evangelism works like that. One of the best things you can do is you talk to other people about God and His goodness and His grace for hell-worthy sinners is to apply it to yourself. And to bring to yourself the very message you bring to other people. Thirdly, 
There's word and deed evangelism, where you, where you go out into the community and you help in concrete ways for the daily things of life. But at the same time, bringing with you maybe tracks and talking to people. And so you combine the word of God with the deeds you're doing. That's an important effort of evangelism among dead bones. And then fourth, there are various church ministries like, like our Sunday school evangelism, but many other ministries out of this church. I'm not going to try to list them all right now. And then there's door-to-door evangelism. Sometimes people are wary of that today because it's difficult and people are afraid when someone rings their doorbell. It's still a proven method of evangelism, however. And then there's what might be called personal evangelism in your own family, at work, at school, uh, when you travel on a train or a bus or an airplane. Um, you might even call that travel evangelism, where people are one-on-one and with you for a while. It's a wonderful time to just lay your work aside and talk to people. Ask them about their family and their work and get close to them and ask them what they believe or ask them what church they go to. Oh, I don't go to church. And then you, you talk about that. Before you know it, you're talking about their soul and the one thing needful and, and try to get their name and send them books and follow up evangelize people. Pray for opportunities whenever you travel to evangelize. And there's tract evangelism. We're actually reviving our tract ministry. It kind of languished for a while. But we just wrote a number of new tracts that are coming out for different people in different situations. Be aware of those. Get some of them. Carry them in your purse or your pocket and give them to people times of after you've discussed things with them. And then there's radio and internet evangelism, which our churches engage in as well. And uh, now we've got four or five stations around the nation. Pray for that, that God will bless those sermons and uh, internet work that's done as well. Bible study evangelism. What an effective means that is. You know, it may not be the, the best thing to just invite someone to church who's never been to church, who's afraid of entering a church service. Maybe the best thing is just to bring them over, befriend them, and begin a little Bible study, just you and them, or maybe two or three other people. And, and then eventually when they show some interest, say, you know, would you like to come to church with me? But Bible study is often a very, very effective means because they can ask all their questions to you. You can answer them. So, It's one thing to do Bible study together with people from the church, which is wonderful too. But what about your neighborhood? It's interesting that Mark Johnston, I learned this from him, a pastor in in London years ago. His church was languishing. It was about to close the doors. And he did what was called friendship neighborhood evangelism. So what what he did is he had every, every member in his church uh, that was willing to volunteer for this, to just contact everybody in their whole block where they lived, just to come over for, for Hamburg and Bratwurst fry out, and then just talk for an evening. And he just put on there, we're going to try to talk about real things, have real conversation, get to meet each other. 
And then uh, while they're reading and even after they're reading, the minister was usually there and maybe one or two other people who were trained to be evangelists in the church to help out. And, and they would talk to people about real things in life and what do they believe and start to, start to evangelize them. First visit, they would never invite them to church, but they would follow up with another contact if someone seemed interested. Eventually, the church was rebuilt through this neighborhood friendship evangelism. So these are just some ideas, and we'll, we'll talk more about that uh, in the future in some class or something, but we need to believe that these efforts are not futile. Also, not the Sunday school evangelism. I wish you all could have been there. I wish you all could have been there in the consistory room one day, I think it was maybe eight years ago now, when a young man walked in and, and said, I just came back to this church to tell you something. I was converted in the Sunday school program here. And I just feel like I owe it to you to tell you, to, to come back and tell you that God changed my life through the Sunday school program and to encourage the teachers and all involved in the Sunday school program to keep on keeping on. That was, that was a beautiful moment. There were tears in many eyes. You see, works that seem hopeless are not hopeless because of the Adonai Yahweh who commands us to bring his word. So cast the bread upon the waters wherever you go, and thou shalt find it. When? Today? Tomorrow? Next week? Sometimes. But usually, as the Bible says, Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, look it up, after many days. After many days. Press on. Be encouraged because of the God of evangelism who has an evangelistic heart for the sake of his only begotten Son. Amen. Gracious God, we pray that we may understand the necessity of evangelism, the content of it, the provision of it, the effect of it, and that it would make a tangible difference in our lives. Help us to get out of bed every morning and have this petition among our other petitions. Help me, Lord, to meet someone today that I can bring the gospel to in one way or another. Make my life fruitful for thy glory and for the good of souls. And use me as a means in thy hand to do the powerful, divine work of evangelism. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.